And uh, now, open up your Bibles again, look at Genesis chapter 12. I have a question to get our brains around a theme of this text. In 10 years, where will you be in life? I want you just to surmise with me for a moment. Uh, If you haven't noticed, the older you are, the clearer your script is becoming, and the more attached to it you become. Is that right? You have retirement plans. You have a certain amount of money that you expect that you will have. You have a dream life. You look at your friends who are in that season and you want that. You're in your 20s. You look at your friends who are married with kids in their 30s and you have a script. You're 40 years old and you're looking at your kids. They're young. They're in junior high. Maybe they're younger. Maybe they're about to graduate high school and you're looking to the 50-year-olds whose kids by and large are out of the house and have all this freedom and you have a script and oftentimes your script is about looking to the next decade, comparing your status of life and just longing and looking for what that might be. So here's a couple questions to get you in the gear. Um, where do you imagine you might live? If you had a million dollars, you're going to put it on this question and you're going to get it right. Where would that be? Are you going to be in the home you're in now? Will you be in another state? Uh, it appears Illinoisans are moving faster out of our state than any other state in the United States. Um, where, yeah. <laughs> where, preach, brother. Where, where do you imagine you will be attending church? Isn't that an interesting question? Like, what if you fast-forwarded 10 years and the Lord just gave you, like, a video to watch of yourself and you were worshiping with a group of people that you have never seen before? You know, what's interesting is the vast majority of you in this room I, have, I had not even had an imagination of 10 years ago. Maybe 20% of you in this room, maybe, I knew 10 years ago. Can you just imagine who's going to be in the room with you? What state will you live in? What place will you be worshiping? Here's the question. Will you even be worshiping Jesus Christ? Will you stay faithful? Will you endure? I mean, those are, some, those are some good questions. So as you get older, oftentimes stability, comfort, and wealth management or wealth acquisition are your greatest priorities. Stability, comfort, and wealth acquisition. This is the obsession of the American. It's the obsession of the American Christian. Now, I have a, a question for you. Does God have permission in your life to take away all of your plans? Does God have permission to erase everything that you have scripted? Does God have permission to blow up your money, to blow up your comfort, to blow up your stability, to blow up your ease? Does he have permission to pluck you out of the comfortable life you've built now and to take you somewhere unknown and frustratingly scary? Does he have permission to take away the things, the people that you love the most? Like how much permission does God actually have in your life? Here's a simple, easy one. What if Village Church plants a new church two minutes from your house. And what if the Lord says, leave, go to that. But Pastor Michael, it's a set up teardown. I don't get up early in the morning. That's really hard. I can't attend one, serve one. That's really challenging. I need 12 hours of sleep a night minimally. I get it, totally, totally understand. 
But what if the Lord, right? What if the Lord says, you know the world where everything in church is easy and comfortable and safe and everything is done for you and you come in and you come in and you leave? What if he says, you know, I actually want you to do something different. Uh, I'm thinking of Village Church East right now at 6 or 7 a.m. They are up unloading trailers, setting up. And guess what? It's actually the, lar- it's the most of their church is doing it. And then they worship together. Uh, they invite and are kind to new people and guests. And then they all stay around and then they clean up, right? Isn't that a different view of church than you're used to, right? And that's the norm. What if God actually says to you, hey, the whole world of comfort and ease that you've built around yourself, I want to dismantle it. What if he says that? Does he have permission to do that? What if you're here at Village Church um, and you have been on the sidelines for a long time and the Lord says, no longer. It's now for you to treat this place like family, like your spiritual family. Um, What if you've withheld your best, your love, your time, your affection, your attention, your engagement? And what if the Lord says, it's time? And you say, "But, but Pastor Michael, you don't understand. I have been burned by church. Raise your hand if you've been burned by church. The vast majority of you in this room at one time or another have and the rest of you inevitably will. Like, I, I get that. But Pastor Michael, you don't understand how much it hurts. And I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm, I'm just saying, does the Lord have permission to enter into your PTSD? Does he have permission to enter into your script? Does he have permission to enter into all the things you were trying so hard to protect and say, I want to do something else with them. I want to do something else with you. We all have plans and agendas, and if there's something I've learned, it is that the Lord's are always better. I did not plan on being the lead pastor of the Village Church of Arlet 10 years ago. Did not have that in my brain. It was not my plan nor my desire, but it is one of the greatest joys I've ever experienced. There are a whole bunch of things in my life I did not plan, but every time the Lord puts something in front of me that is risky and is scary and is really, really unnerving and dismantles all of my agendas, I have never once regretted walking into the Lord's plans. God's plans are almost always, I would say 99.8% of the time when he has a future for you, it's almost always going to be connected to risk and discomfort. Isn't that scary? You're like, I want to follow Jesus Christ and give him my life. Okay. He will ask you to do incredibly difficult things, to take significant risks, and to walk into discomfort on a regular basis. And here's what I've just come to agree with. The only plan that actually matters is God's plan. That's it. I'm telling you, I'm a planner, I'm a thinker, I'm a dreamer, I've got all these things I wanna do, all these things I wanna accomplish uh, in my personal life, with my wife, with my family, with my kids, with the church. I mean, you name it, like I am a dreamer and a planner. And I have a beautiful, wonderful, excellent, prosperous, comfortable future in my script, right? Nobody sits there and says, "Um, I'm going to plan discomfort and to make my life miserable and to go broke and to get tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt and then to overspend my life. Like nobody says that on purpose. Your plans are not to ruin your life. And this is why I say almost every American's plans have to do with comfort, stability, and wealth acquisition. That's what it is. But what if, what if in our pursuit of these fine things, they're not evil, but what if in pursuit of these fine things, the Lord just wants to blow it all up. And I've, I've come to a place where the Lord, there, there are harder things that he has for me in the future, and I don't know what they are, but right now, the best I can say is, Lord, your plans are the only plans that actually matter. I, when I dream, when I plan, sometimes they're going to be congruent with yours, and sometimes they're not going to be. And so when they're not, I got to put them aside and say, Lord, what do you want? What do you want? 
So we're launching a series today on the life of Abraham. We're jumping back into Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 12, 1 through 10 this morning. And the, the story of Abraham goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. That's where the major chunk of his life is. And this first section that we're going to be in over the next three weeks is from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. And this series is called The Conversion of Abraham. Because we're going to watch Abraham move from a polytheistic pagan to a follower of the one true God, Yahweh, from Genesis 12, 13, 14, and finally in 15. So again, open up Genesis 12, 1. Let's answer a couple questions for you, because some of you actually are newer to the Bible. Abraham is a big mystery for you. Placing people in time and space and history in scripture is hard. And so I want to just give you some big picture uh, details about who is Abraham. Number one, Abraham at the time of this story is roughly 75 years old. Uh, Abraham is a polytheistic pagan from a place in Mesopotamia called very large city, beautiful city, pagan city. There is nothing monotheistic or God-honoring, by and large, about this city. Now, Abraham, here's what you have to understand. Um, he has likely, little, most likely, no knowledge or experience with Yahweh, the one true and only God. At best, if he does, it is most likely become folklore or myth. Like, this isn't like a real thing, like Hercules is to you or Sisyphus is to you. This is sort of probably what Yahweh would be to Abraham. So what God's going to do is he's going to enter into this man's life. He's going to pluck him out of all of humanity, of all of the millions of people on the planet at the time. And out of this man is going to come the three greatest, largest, most influential religions of the world. Islam, Judaism, pop quiz. What is the third one? Wow, that's, wow, that's, that's good. I appreciate it. No, that's correct. Like, wrong. No, that's correct. That is correct. Um, arguably, he's the second most important person in scripture next to who? Jesus. Good job. All right. Some of you are going to say Moses, and I'm like, no, Jesus is the most important person in the Bible. We're on, we're on the same page. Now, before he was called Abraham, he was called Abram, and in a few weeks, we're going to get to the name change of why that is. And so in Genesis 12 to 25, I want you to see this. There's two narratives being told. Uh, the first one is this, Abraham's personal story and legacy. And so you're going to find the details of his life. This is sort of like a biography. It starts at about 75 years old when the greatest part of his life begins. And so uh, the writers are going to pluck out some of the most important stories of his life. Um, all of Abraham's legacy, at the end of the day, comes down to these stories. Um, I wish I knew what happened um, from birth to age 74, but that apparently is not important. But age 75 is when the best part of his life happens. It's when God intervenes and he becomes a follower of Yahweh. But there's a second part to this story, and I want to take some time with this, and I want to wrap your brain around it if we could. And Abraham, this whole story, this series from Genesis 12 to 25, um, is a part of a larger story. It is a part of God's larger story and worldwide history, historical agenda. So I wanna, I wanna show you how this works. So um, the story of Abraham, of course, stands by itself, but the story of Abraham, um, it's a part of the story of Genesis. See this? So Genesis, right? We have this book, and the book of Genesis is the story of the beginning of all things. In fact, Genesis focuses on a family line, the family of Adam to Seth. It goes down and down and down, ultimately to Abraham, Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's going to follow a lineage. 
Uh, and so what you ultimately have is the book of Genesis. And Abraham's story stand on its, stands on its own, but it's a part of a larger narrative. Now, uh, the story of Abraham is also part of the Torah. Now, the Torah, right, Genesis is in the Torah, and that is Genesis, Exodus, say with me, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Good. And the Torah is a collection of books that focuses on the origins and the birth and the doctrine and the culture of the Jewish nation, which actually is the nation that comes from this lineage, the lineage of Abraham. But we don't stop there. The story of Abraham and also of Genesis and the Torah is also a part of the Old Testament. And the story of the Old Testament is the story of God uh, bringing a Messiah through this line, through this nation, Israel. And ultimately, you go from beginning to end, and God is ushering in a Messiah who will save humanity from their sins. But we're not done. The story of Abraham, as well as the story of Genesis, the Torah, the Old Testament, they're also part of Jesus' story personally. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of promises made to Abraham and to Adam and all throughout the Old Testament. And so you see that every story builds on each other. Not only that, the story of Abraham is a part of Genesis, the Torah, the Old Testament, Jesus' story. In fact, the whole Bible. The whole Bible is the story from creation to the final conclusion of all things. Creation, fall, redemption in Jesus Christ, and ultimately the renewal of all things. And so what you see here is that Abraham is not just about Genesis or the Torah or the Old Testament or Jesus' story or the whole Bible. It's also part of your story. That what, what happened with Abraham personally impacts and affects you today. No Abraham, no Jesus, no Messiah, no salvation. You're left in your sin. But there's a bigger picture going on here. And if you miss this, you're going to miss the overarching theme of the Bible. And it's this, that all of this is a part of God's story. History is God's to write. And God is over history. God is the sovereign of space, time, scriptures, and history. And the scriptures are revealing an aspect of what God is doing in the most highlighted points and the most beautiful stories. But at the end of the day, Abraham's story matters because it's a part of what God is doing. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to teach through Abraham, and we're going to be going kind of back and forth between Abraham's personal story and legacy and God's larger story and agenda. Um, some scriptures are going to be about an opportunity to look at his life and really learn some practical things from his life. And some of these are going to be about overarching things that God is doing. We're going to see how Abraham fits into the larger narrative of scripture. This will be, I think, one of the best series to help you understand how the Bible comes together and why God did what he did and why Jesus has come. So point number one in your notes says this. Will I follow? Let's watch together as Yahweh pursues and initiates a relationship with this pagan polytheist named Abram. Will I follow? Verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Let's make this personal. Follow me. From the known to the unknown. From the, uncom from the comfortable to the very uncomfortable. From family, from everybody you love, leave them to strangers. Most importantly, from pagan, cultic, polytheism, the only faith by and large he would have ever known about 
to what was unheard of and unthinkable for their time. Like, you're used to monotheism. The fact that there's one God and the three major religions of the world are monotheistic, like, that's normal for you. This was not normal. This was a shock. I want you to leave the comfort of what you've always known about the nature and character of the gods. I want you to abandon that knowledge, and I want you to serve one God, and only one God forever for the rest of your life. And I want you to commit to a new narrative that all the other gods are figments of imaginations or demons. Like that is a huge ask. So by going, he's not just going to a better land. He's going, God willing, to a better God. He's going from falsehood to truth. He's making a decision to leave everything that he knows as true, right, and normal into an incredibly difficult unknown. Hey God, so where are we going? Don't worry about it. No, I really wanna know, like where are we going? It doesn't matter. I'll show you when you get there. When I say go left, you go left. When I say go right, you go right. How many of you ever would like love to get in the car, be the driver, and your spouse says to you, um, I'll tell you when we get there. Well, where are we going? Turn right in about one mile. Okay. Like that would be incredibly aggravating. And, 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 yet, and yet here's what happens to Abraham. God doesn't tell him. Here's what Hebrews 11, 8 says. Um, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Here's what I've, I've learned from pastoring, scripture, life in general. God is going to ask you to do impossibly difficult things. He just is. And, and if he hasn't, he will. And if he doesn't, I do have a big question, why? My experience with people who follow Jesus Christ is that God inevitably asks them to do something really, really difficult. Um, I've also found that God is going to ask you probably eventually to leave behind really good things that you love. I've also learned that obedience and the journey, it is never as glorious as it looks in a book. It's excruciating. It's difficult. There are tears. There's heartache. And there's pain. And so it's one thing to say, I'll go. Wherever you send me, Lord, I will go. And and yet the hard reality on the ground is that it's rarely, if ever, glorious. It's only glorious in retrospect when you write your book or tell your story. That's it. But the process is filled with anxiety and struggle and pain. Welcome to humanity. But God grows faith, character, intimacy with himself. I have found, by and large, in the hardest parts of our lives. In fact, the things that we say as followers of Christ, we want the most. most. Give me more faith. Give me more courage. Give me more Christ-likeness. Give me more character. Are they not forged primarily in difficulty? And so this is God's method. And so some of you are like, that. you're not making me want to trust in Jesus, Michael. Jesus says, count the cost. Does somebody go to war without really counting the cost? And one of the things that I love to tell people is, is look, you, you've probably heard a million times, if you come to Jesus Christ, your whole life is going to be amazing. And what I have found, that I have no regrets, but on the journey of following God, he has often asked me to walk into incredibly difficult, hard, frustrating, irritating, anxious, anxiety-building circumstances. But then I get to the end of it, right? And you look back, and you're not the same, are you? 
you get to the end of it and you look back and it's like, wow, God knew what he was doing because the very thing that I said I wanted, he formed in the forge. He formed in the heat. He formed in the trial. Even though in the middle of it, I was angry with him and frustrated with him. It's interesting when you get to the retrospect side of things, how our perspective and attitude changes. I want to put it this way. What matters most is not how it feels, but going where God says to go. And and this is why one of my most recent prayers is, Lord, whatever you want, we, we want. Wherever you want to take us, we want to go. Whatever your will is, that's what we want. And Lord, we have a million ideas. I have a million things that are surmising my brain, but I lay them all aside because here's what I do know. Whatever you have in store, whatever your heart for me or this place or my family or my kids or this church, whatever it is, that's what I want. Because whatever you have in your brain, as hard as it might be, whatever the personal cost to myself, I do know without a shadow of a doubt, in retrospect, I will look back and say, you were a genius, you were right, and your way was actually better. And everything I really wanted in my heart of hearts I got through following your will, despite how difficult it is. Verse two, goes on. You're like, Michael, we're in verse one, okay. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Like, is this not motivation? Like, on one level, he's like, you're gonna give me everything I've ever wanted, this should be easy peasy. Minus a thousand mile journey through heartache and trouble and frustration. I want you to notice three things. Just watch this text on the screen here. I want you to notice the substance of the promise at the end of verse three. It says that you will be a blessing and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, I think what's interesting he's saying to him here is, listen, You might be remembered for your money, you're incredibly wealthy, you're very popular, et cetera. But here's here's what I wanna do. Uh, I don't want people just to remember you. When people personally interact with you, they will objectively be blessed, they will have favor from God on their lives because of your interaction with them. There will be light brought into their darkness. There will be opportunities for them to move closer toward truth and beauty because they have interacted with you. This is not just about you leaving a legacy now. This is about you making a personal, realistic impact for the kingdom of God. I want you to notice also, um, secondly, I want you to notice all the I wills. I will make, I will bless, I will bless, I will curse. The only requirement was to obey. And by the way, who took all the initiative here? Yahweh, God, right? I mean, Abraham wasn't seeking God. In fact, as it it appears, Abraham is just this random guy in a random place, and God sinks down, plucks him out, and says, you. And I imagine a conversation between God and Abraham, and it might go like this. uh, God, why did you pick me? It's none of your business. Like, am I better than everybody else? No. In fact, I'm going to prove to you that you're worse than other people. Um, Am I, like, really special? Uh, you're only special because I've put my favor on you. That's about the only thing you got going for you, man, right now is uh, other people think you're great because you have money. I didn't pluck you out because you're money. I, I have bigger, larger purposes. I actually, I plucked you out so that when we get to the end of this, there will not be one moment where you were tempted to say, God chose me because I was good. 
You're, you're just going to step back and you're going to say, I didn't deserve this. I played no part in this. In fact, when you look at your salvation, Abraham, here's what's going to happen. Um, you're going to look back and say, all of God, to God be all the glory. I didn't deserve this. I wasn't even looking. And you entered into my life, broke me out of my sinful insanity, and ushered me into new life. Every bit of it is going to be of God, to God, and for God's glory. Beautiful picture of salvation. Now, we're going to get more into this, but here's what you need to know. Um, according to Scripture, Abraham isn't, quote, saved yet. We'll, we'll get there, but just hold that. Number three, I want you to notice what is implicit in this text. It's like God is saying to Abraham, everything you really want, uh, I'm not talking about comfort wealth acquisition, stability. You know that part of your soul that wants something really deeper than that? You wanna be more impactful than just comfortable? You know that little piece? Everything you really want, Abraham, is not here. But if you follow me, I can give it to you. Now do you think Abraham thought it was gonna be easy? I think he did. And we're gonna find that Abraham does not have an easy journey at all. Point number two in your notes, following is rarely easy. All right, so the book of Romans tells us that Abraham was not saved or justified or legally made right with God or born again, whatever word you want to use, until Genesis chapter 15. Here's what Romans chapter four, verses two and three says. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Does Abraham have anything to boast about? No, not at all. The author wants you to know Abraham is a wretched sinner, and you're going to just watch this over the course of this study. You're going to see this man make mistake after mistake after mistake, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And this is actually referencing Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham, Abram at the time, actually, actually gets saved. So right now in 12, 13, and 14, Abraham is yet to be justified before God, which is why we call this the conversion of Abraham. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6, I believe. And so what we're finding here is that God is drawing this uh, non-believer or this person who is skeptical, who is not all in, who has not placed their faith in God yet, and he's going to draw him. You're going to watch as he goes from Ur to the promised land. You're going to watch as God is working in his heart. You're going to watch the struggle that Abram has to really, really trust God. And it's not till Genesis 15 where he finally says, you know what? You know what, I'm all in. Everybody being drawn uh, by God, this is what I found, is going to encounter three big snares. I want to I show you these. Um, so you might be working with somebody, praying for somebody to come to Christ. You might be watching the ebbs and flows of their almost relationship with God. And, and I, I want to show you three very typical things that you will see in the unbeliever's life who is searching or trying to figure out what they really believe about God. So verse 4 says this. This is the first snare. It's called a lot. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and who went with him? Lot. Is Lot supposed to be there? You're like, I don't know, Michael, but I feel like the way you asked that question, the answer is no. So <laughs> we're going to keep going. And Lot 
went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. By the way, if you're 75, I'm not saying you're young, middle-aged, or old. I've learned like those categories are offensive at Village Church. So you're not young, okay? Um, and right, you're in the last third of your life. We can say that comfortably, okay, with the general statistics on longevity and human living, okay? Um, is God afraid to ask you to do ridiculous things that are incredibly difficult and obscene and frustrating and break up all of your wealth acquisition and stability and comfort at 75 years old? The answer is yes. I know you're hesitant to say that, but the answer is yes. So you can say yes. One, two, three. Yes. Reluctantly, they said. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and gosh, why is he there? Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Why does God talk so much about Lot? Go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Let's look at this. Here's the command. Go from your country and your, what's the word? Kindred. Is Lot kindred? The answer is yes. Absolutely. Why? Like Lot is not a bad thing, is he? Lot, Lot is your relative. Lot is a good guy, right? Lot represents good things that the Lord is going to ask you to leave behind. When you come to Christ, I have just found this, there are a lot of good things that have become controlling things. There are a lot of good things that have become idols. And when you come to Christ, God is not reluctant to say, you know the good thing in your life? You know the lot in your life? You need to walk away from it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's sinful, but it's not a part of the future I have for you. And I found most oftentimes it comes down to two areas of our life. Number one is relationships. And number two is comfort. Those are the two things that we refuse to let go of. And I can't tell you how many people walk away from God, disobey God for a season because of a relationship or a pleasure, a relationship or an ease of life, a relationship or something that creates the stability of their life in comfort. And God is not at all, at all afraid to ask them to put them away. Now, you might say to me, um, but the Bible does not say that it was wrong of Abram to take Lot. And the Bible does not need to say it because one of the things that the Bible does is it's written in narrative form, story form, and the Bible tells you what is right and wrong by the things that happen in the story. So the author of the Bible is assuming you are a thinking person who has the ability to add one plus one equals two. And so the Bible, the narrative, the writer assumes that when you read verse 1, you would conclude this, Abraham is supposed to just take his immediate family and leave and take nothing else with him. In fact, the end of Genesis 11 tells us that even his dad came and his dad stopped halfway there before they got into the promised land. That he didn't just take Lot, he took his father. And look, he, he's obeying, right? And this is good, but is he all in yet? He trusts God like like, God has the carrot out in front of him, but has he really fully placed his faith and trust in Yahweh yet? Not yet. Not yet. I mean, let's empathize. Um, wouldn't you want, if God asked you to do something impossibly difficult, to take family with you, to take a comfort with you? Absolutely. I want to come back to my original question. Does God have your permission? Not that he needs it, but does he have your permission to ask you to throw out your script, to throw out all the things that you believe and you say you need, and to do what he's asking you to do. 
And here's the tension that you're going to see. It it appears on one hand, it appears that everything God was going to offer Abram was contingent on him leaving. And it it appears from the text now, if if you're a good old person who believes in the sovereignty of God... Probably Abram was destined to do this anyways, but um, it, it appears that Abram had a decision and the blessings were contingent on him obeying and making his way out. But I understand it. I get it. This is hard. I get it. This is painful. But God looked at him and said, listen, I want you to leave it all behind. And God was going to make his life very difficult until he did. And we're going to see that this week and next week. Now let's look at the second snare for people considering Christ. We call them Canaanites. Canaanites were a real historical people, but they also represent something, I think, bigger that we need to dig into. Verse 5 says this, when they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6 says, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Canaanites are going to represent difficult realities that we're going to face along the way. Just that simple. Uh, There are going to be challenges. There are going to be worldly things that are going to pull us in. There are going to be things that are tempting. There are going to be things that are, are, are part of our past. The Canaanites represented, by the way, familiar gods and goddesses and cultic practices that would have just been so near and dear to his heart. Um, can I give you an illustration? Um, you know when you were a kid in church, the songs you loved to sing, right? Many of you have hymns, and if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, Lord, prepare me to be... I can't sing, so I'm going to stop right there. But you know what I mean? Like, so so uh, when I'm with people my age, uh, sometimes we'll just start singing youth group songs like, Lord, I lift your name on high. And, and there's something so just like appealing and satisfying. And then my brain goes back to all of these beautiful experiences in church and youth group. And every generation has their own different songs that they did this to. Uh, but they're familiar and they just draw you in. And the, the moment the tune is on, you just start singing. You know that feeling? That's what the cult worship of the Canaanites was like for Abraham. It's appealing, it's, it's familiar, it's what he knew as a kid, it was the songs they sang, the practices they did, it was alluring, it was drawing, it was tempting. And when, you, when you're coming to Christ, you're, you're gonna be faced with two very different worldviews. You're gonna be faced with the alluring nature of what you've always known, secular culture, hedonism, get what you want, take what you want, versus God who says, give it all away and be a servant, stop consuming, give your life away for Christ, be willing to go wherever you wanna go, and then the world says, you are your own God, you determine your destiny, you become your best self. The future is yours, nobody tells me what to do, I am autonomous, and God says, no, you live under my authority, you are not autonomous, you do what I say, you go where I say, you think what I tell you to think, not because you're lemming, because it's true and right. Do you see the difference? This is a, a competition of worldviews that gets down to the very heart of the man. The Canaanites offered, let's summarize it this way, immediate happiness without perceived negative consequences now. That's what they offered. Immediate happiness without perceived negative consequences now. And here's what God offered. Postponed happiness with actual consequences now. If you were seven years old, what would you choose? If non-Christian you saw those options, what would you choose? By the way, the, I th- the only way someone chooses the latter is if God gives them faith. I mean, faith is the ultimate shifter of this reality. Faith gives you the ability to believe in the things you cannot see. Faith gives you the ability to play the long game, to believe the things that are waiting for you are infinitely better than the things that are offered for your pleasure now.
we could contemporize this in pagan religions and secularism. They have a lot of things in common. You can come to God on your own terms. You can make God in your own image or whatever image you want. You can satisfy your every desire and you are celebrated for it. And your gods are tangible. You can touch them, you can feel them, and they require no faith. By the way, look at your children. Can you see why that's appealing to them? Can you see why this is a draw? Can you see why this is what pulls them in and as you raise them, there's like this battle in your home for their hearts. You have the battle where the culture, secularism says to them, be who you want, do what you want, I will applaud you. And the Lord says, you are who I say you are. I have uniquely designed you, function in this way and you will thrive and survive. And then the culture says, if God really loved you, he would never ask you to do something that doesn't feel good. By the way, parents, is that a good parenting strategy? It's interesting, culture advocates things that we would never ever do in our personal lives. Imagine you look at your three-year-old, do whatever you want, be whoever you want. There is no wrong, satisfy every whim and desire. Your life would be total misery and the world would be chaos. No parent ever raises their kids like the culture wants to raise them. The culture is not looking out for the good of your kids. But how many times have, has my, one of my daughters said to me, when I have kids, I'm not going to give them any rules. Oh, yeah? Sure. Good luck on that, right? Half the time, I give you rules for my own sanity, and that's about it. Let's look at the third snare for people considering Christ. Famines. Famines represent inevitable difficulties that you're going to face. Lots are the good things you need to let go of. They're going to be hard. Canaanites is the lure of your heart culture. But famines are the inevitable, difficult realities that will come your way if you walk where God tells you to walk and go where he says to go. Now, he gets to the promised land. <clears throat> what would you be expecting? Milk, honey, etc. Beautiful, awesome, amazing, wonderful, open pasture, no one there. And people are already living there. Not only that, but there's a famine in the land. So Abraham goes down to Egypt to sojourn there. Why? Because the famine was severe in the land. Okay, God, um, in my little narrative, if you tell me to go someplace, that place is always going to be amazing. Is that the truth? Sometimes God tells you to go to places that are deserted, that are famine, that are frustrating that don't meet your expectations. I have found almost every time God doesn't meet my expectations, I have filled in the blank with my own desires and called it what God has told me. And I imagine God saying, I never told you the land was gonna be anything. I just told you to go to the land that I was gonna show you. Your brain filled it all with beauty and glory and milk and honey and all the other stuff, pastures and whatnot. But he gets there and let's just put it this way. God doesn't meet his expectations. This is the promised land. This is the land that God's going to give him. God has trucked him a thousand miles to this place. And then immediately he goes to what is safe, normal, and comfortable. It's interesting. We're going to see this next week. Um, but the narrative is going to tell you that Abram should have never gone down to Egypt. God made Abram to be a blessing. And he would be a measurable curse to everyone he interacts with in Egypt. I have full expectations that when the Lord asks me, whatever the decision is to do something, that it's not always going to be easy, land easy, 
feel good, but it's going to be right. And sometimes, inevitably, right, inevitably, beauty comes. But I'll be honest, it usually takes a lot longer than I want it to happen. And I think counting the cost and just knowing this is just going to be so valuable. I think there's just a... Um, a real challenge in American Christianity right now, and I see this at Village Church. It actually concerns me deeply um, how I even believe this, how this even becomes just a part of the nature of how we think about God and Christianity. Like, if things are going good, then it's always God's blessing, but if it's hard, then we can't do it. I gotta avoid difficulty. I'm too busy. You know, like, like, and I found that really just God asks us to do difficult things, and it's not always easy. And that's okay. Like this ability for us as believers to do hard things and to have a bit more grit to ourselves. Like sometimes we are some of the most soft people. Like, oh, they spoke to me the wrong way. I'm not going to church for three weeks. Really? Really? And that's nobody. I'm making that story up, by the way. Okay? I didn't like the way they looked at me. I don't know. The whole church is just judgmental. Really? I'm I'm just, I don't like the way a lot of you are looking at me right now. So I don't know. Like, I'm kidding. But... But you get the point, right? This, this grit thing that, that, we, that we have to grow, we have to grow strength and courage and the ability to endure. This is why one of the realities that the New Testament teaches is that being a church is enduring with one another and our stupidity and our difficulties and our frustrations and our sins and our struggles and our forgetfulness and all the times we're not thinking the way we should think and all the times we say something really ridiculous. Like, welcome to family. Welcome to family. And yet... We get there and it's harder than we thought, so we run. Family's hard. Family's really hard. But you know what? Don't you love being in a family? Yeah? But it's hard. Look at your brothers, your sisters, your mom, and your dad. All you want is health, and you want this unit to be together. And there's bickering and there's fighting. And I know some of you have had such crazy families, and this is hard for you to understand, but most of you have had some semblance of normality where really at the end of the day, you are glad that you had your family beautiful, but it's difficult. And I think when we look at these famines, we get to the reality of the Christian life, and it's hard, and the temptation in you will be to run. You might be watching a friend of yours or a family member of yours. They're considering Christ, and so they come to church, right? And they had a bad experience. They didn't like something the preacher said. They didn't like something the way somebody talked to them, and then they leave. They get to the place where they're supposed to be, right? And then they find something that's inconvenient, and they're gone, and you're freaking out. Well, over the next two weeks, you're going to say, don't freak out. Get on your knees and pray because it is not uncommon for the person who is being drawn by God to find lots, Canaanites, and famines and freak out. But let me tell you this. When God starts drawing somebody, God will have his way. And that God can overcome all of these insecurities and difficulties and these lots and these Canaanites and these famines. And all of this along the way, all it's doing is continually exposing that person's need that they need a savior because they are a sinner. I want to close with a couple so what's. Number one, Abraham was not saved yet, but he was testing the waters. This is interesting because I think we are tempted to impose how we view worship and altars, if you will, onto the text. But I just want to show you this. Uh, It says this in verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, 
To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then from there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And the idea here reads sort of like he's on a journey. Um, The possibility also is that he's going and he stays in one part of the promised land, uh, dwells for a little while there. It could be a year or two, picks up tent, moves to a different part of the promised land. He's familiarizing himself with the territory, staying out of the way of the, the Canaanites. Um, but then you see this, this reality that he's building altars. And you're going to be tempted to say, look, he worshiped God. And, and yet this is just actually more of a respect thing you would do out of natural custom. You build a temple, and this was a way of basically saying, nope, Yahweh owns this land. And one of the things Abram always understood is that Yahweh did own this land. But Abram had not yet given Yahweh his heart. That's Genesis 15. And so you're watching him. You're watching him test the waters. Um, sometimes I, I watch people who are searching and seeking, and they come to Village Church, and they even find themselves singing the lyrics to songs that they don't even believe yet. And there's something in their heart that is drawing them to this place. And it's a really beautiful thing to watch somebody who's being drawn by God. It's amazing. Number two, uh, I don't have a script for you. Like, I don't have a, a secret thing that I'm going to ask you to do, so don't, don't worry. I just... Expect that God will ask something difficult of you and walk into it. I dare you. Ask him. Is there something difficult you've asked me to do that I haven't done yet? And let the spirit testify to your spirit of what is there. Number three. God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God saved you to be a blessing first. Not first to pursue your comfort, stability, and wealth acquisition. Although those are good. But here's my question. Are you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, a blessing? Are people who know you brought closer to truth, grace, and love inevitably because of their interactions with you? Number four, God's plan of redemption marches on despite our failures, right? I look at all of you, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, we are royal mess-ups. Like, we can screw up the Christian life like no one else's business. Like, we are capable of doing such ridiculous things. And what I love about the story of Abraham is it is failure after failure after failure after failure, and yet not one of his failures messes up the overarching plan of God through history. And there's this beautiful message. God's gonna do what he's gonna do. You can be a part of it, you can receive the blessing, you can shun it, you can quench the spirit, or you can walk into the difficulty. I would say, let's walk into it, no matter how hard it might be, no matter how inconvenient it might be, but I love this. Whatever you do or whether you don't do it, the plan of God marches on and it is unstoppable, which is great news for you because that means one day, unstoppably Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead and your future is secure. This is the most real and true thing about our life. The plan of God will culminate with the second coming of Christ and you will be with him forever. Now we have so much more to say about Abraham and I wanna invite you back next week because we're gonna watch failure after failure after failure. If you want more, read Genesis 12, 13, and 14 and you're gonna watch the man of faith, the founder of the three largest religions, if you will, fail miserably, and you're going to see the grace of God with every single one of them. Let's pray together. Father, I am thankful for Abraham. I am thankful for his life. I'm thankful for his struggles. I am thankful, God, that you gave us a glimpse into his life even before he trusted you. 
I'm grateful for Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 as he is wrestling with you and your commands and figuring out whether or not you really are trustworthy as he interacts with lots and Canaanites and famines and Egypt and his own heart at the end of the day. And Lord, we declare together in agreement with Abraham, we are not good. There is nothing that we can boast about. You have pursued us. You are the great initiator and in you are more blessings than we could ever comprehend even despite the difficulties. Father, what a joy to come back to the communion table and just remember the the promises that you've given to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets culminated in Jesus Christ. We are grateful, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen?